Y'all having a good night? Yeah? Um, so a, a, a little strange uh, as far as the video is concerned, but, you know, some startling truths and some startling realities about who we are in Jesus Christ that we have been previously defined by our past. We have struggled with our past. Our past has been our identity, and yet it still screams at us. I think the, the line in it, who can set me free? Who will give me hope? Where is hope going to come from? And then you came. You call me your child. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. You're dead to sin, no longer alive to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus. All of those things. And then that last stamp, it is finished. The struggle is over. The, the wrestle with the old man, he's dead. He's been crucified. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has gone, and behold, Jesus makes all things new. So with that, as our diving board tonight, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you so much for the gospel. I thank you that you take wretched corpses like us who have nothing lovely, nothing of worth, nothing of value except what you have given us through the image of God that has been marred. Father, I thank you that you demonstrated your love for us while we were ugly, while we were sinners, while we were cancerous, infected with sin. You demonstrated beautifully and masterfully through the brutality of the cross your love for us in order to uphold your holiness and your justice and your righteousness to glorify yourself but also for our good that we can be no longer slaves to sin we can be children of God, sons of God, daughters of God heirs of the promise, no longer in bondage to sin, but set free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. So Father, tonight we thank you. We celebrate freedom. We celebrate the cross. We celebrate not our independence from you any longer because of sin, but Lord, we celebrate our dependence upon you, that we have nothing that has not been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. So, Father, at the level ground of the cross, the, the ground of humble beginnings, we, we come to you tonight. We ask that you would teach us. We ask that you would lead us in truth as we've studied your word this week. And, Lord, we ask that you would change us, that we would be transformed from glory to glory as we press in to know you more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Awesome. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn them in them to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And if anybody needs a Muslim yellow pages, um, I've got one up here. I don't know why we would need that. Um, we're going to reach out to some Muslims. Awesome. It's kind of like the shepherd's guide, I guess, where you only buy from Christians so the gospel doesn't get out, whatever. Go to Acts chapter 7, actually, verse 58. We're going to pick up in a story that we started last week. And uh, this week, if you're new with us, um, or if you're joining us for the first time, we are studying the book of Acts together. And what that means is, typically when we say we're studying the book of Acts, you think, oh, I'm going to come like a drive-through where this guy's going to come up and he's going to study all week. And uh, then he's going to regurgitate all the information that he studied this week, and I have studied this week. Um, that that's usually what... Whoa. Did you hear that? Was that weird to you? Okay, whatever. Um, that we uh, regurg I regurgitate information, you process information, we get up, we leave, we go to IHOP and get even more carb loaded and go home and go to bed. Wake up the next day and boom, start it all over again, compartmentalize our Christianity. My challenge to you this week and this summer since June has been let's study the Word of God together. Let's take it in bite-sized pieces, nothing too crazy. We're not going to get out, you know, the Greek dictionary or the lexicon or anything like that. We're going to study God's Word together. And um, it's been awesome because the first, like, two weeks, you know, a, a couple thousand people are like, right on, I, I'm going to check on that. I'm going to check on that. 
A couple weeks later, you know, you get down to like 800. A couple weeks later, 600. And I think, I think today's, no, yesterday's was right at about 30. So we've gone from a couple thousand to 30 people. Whatever. People pressing in to know the word. We took the challenge. We're going to continue talking about it. And hopefully, with that little slap in your face, uh, we'll get to it a little bit more. I love you enough to tell you. Get in the word, okay? Here we go. This week, uh, we looked at the life of Saul slash Paul. From this point forward, we're going to call him Paul because it gets a little confusing, all right? Now, a few things that I want to hit before we jump full on into our discussion, before we talk in our little cohorts, before we discuss some things together. Um, Tell me, those of you who have done the study, those of you who have walked with us through Acts up until this point, what has been going on in the book of Acts? Okay, the start of the church, the first church. Holy Spirit, what about him? He came, whereas in the Old Testament he would come upon people for mighty acts of valor. Here it's who? Who does he come upon? Who does, what's the relationship there? Okay, the apostles, super Christians, they have the Holy Spirit, that's it. Someone yell out heresy, please, because that's wrong, right? Help me out. Who has the Holy Spirit? All believers. Ephesians 2, we talked about that. We're sealed with him until the day of redemption. It's the down payment of the gospel, down payment of what's to come, all right? But that's Acts chapter 1 and chapter 2. What else happens? It usually takes us about three minutes to get where people start talking. Okay, persecution, lots of people got saved. Now, let's take those two things because they seem like, it seems like if you want a lot of people to get saved, what, what do you have to do in order, okay? No, wait, hold on, let me clarify. If we logically, not biblically, logically, if we wanted people to get saved, what would we do to the gospel message? Make it cheerful? Your best life now? Sugarcoat it? It's about success. It's about God's, uh, God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. Forget about all that other stuff in the Old Testament about God hating sin. God loves you. Forget about God's holiness. God loves you. And see what happens when you amplify one attribute of God and separate it from all the other attributes of God, you are worshiping an idol that you've created that looks like you and not God. So we take God's love and we put it back into the hub of his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, okay? So you said suffering, you said a lot of people are getting saved. How did those two work? How does that work with, with each other? What do you mean, Joel? Seeing it li- lived out. Okay. To clarify, those of you who have not studied with us the, thus far, when Joel says stoned, he's not talking about a bong, and he's not talking about um, a hippie van with the Grateful Dead playing. What are we talking about? In Acts chapter 7, what did we look at? Stephen, the first martyr. What's that mean, martyr? Killed for your faith. Okay? And through his example, what happened? What did he do? Did he run in fear? Please don't hurt me. He had boldness. He asked for his accusers and his, the people that were hurling these rocks at him. He said, forgive them. Kind of reminds you of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them. He, he has the mind of Christ in the midst, not of joyous blessing and prosperity, but in the midst of suffering, in the midst of persecution. He's showing Jesus is worth everything. Now, Fast forward 2,000 years to our kind of 
cultural Christianity that we have today. What usually happens when we see suffering, when we experience suffering ourselves? There's a hotline, 1-800-HELP-ME. Okay. People donate money, all that kind of stuff. Okay, let's internalize it even more. When something bad happens to me, and, and I'll say me, we'll just say hypothetical for you so that you don't tell on yourself. What usually happens to people, believers, with suffering? God, I, I did this for you. I've gone to church. I've tithed, God. Come on. You're going to give me cancer? God, I've done this. I've done that. I've done this. I've done that. Why can't you... Give me another blank. I always, I always choose cancer. Job. Why have I lost my job? Why am I being persecuted for my faith at, at my workplace? What else? A death in the family. A death of a friend. God, I thought, I thought that if I worshipped you, if I obeyed you, that everything would go okay. And we might never verbalize that, we might not even pray that, but we operate in that way. Where we think that when we become a believer that, well, I mean, God's on my side. Everything's going to be great. Right? Yeah? Tell me out. What are y'all thinking? Have you seen this, or is this like, what's this guy talking about? Seen it? Yeah. Are, are we saying that when a Christian goes through something that's hard, that they're supposed to be like, God is good all the time. God is good. My mom has cancer, but God is good. Is it like this cliche fake Christianity? Have you seen the fake people where, you know, it's like, are you real? You're plastic? Like, is that emotion in there? Your mom is dying of cancer. What do you mean, Joel? It's not if, but when we suffer. Okay. Okay, but let's go back, Joel. Let me, let me pick that apart for a second. I'm supposed to what in the midst of my suffering? Rejoice. So that kind of sounds like to me the little plastic. God is good. Hallelujah, I'm sick. How do you how do you reconcile those? Yeah. Okay, Joel is basically quoting Romans five and, and saying also in there that the in the midst of that suffering, in the midst of the perseverance in the midst of the, the hope that the love of God is being poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit as we walk through those suffering situations. Now back to you. What was your thing that was being said about the early church? Lots of people were being saved. So imagine if on the marquee of our church, hey, come be a Christian this Sunday, you're going to suffer. Come, uh, come, well, I think Jesus said it like this. Hey, if you want to follow after me, what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and start walking. Start following after me. Cross. Not the one that's painted in your house, not the one that's around your neck, but the brutality of the cross is what Jesus has called us to. So while it might seem a little ridiculous for us to go out on the street corner and be like, hey, come suffer. Suffer for Jesus. That might be a little, whatever that blah, blah, blah-istic word is. I can't ever think of it. Uh, it might be a little gross, a little weird. That's my vocabulary, the extent right there. That's really what Jesus has called us to. If you look at any of the epistles, if you look at the rest of Acts, if you look at um, the lives of all of the apostles... Was it, you know, living on the lake and 
the lap of luxury with some Gucci suits and all that kind of stuff? Answer is no. Okay, yeah. No, they all died a pretty horrible death, except for one of them after he was boiled alive a couple of times. Put in a pot of boiling oil. Okay, yeah. They believed either they were like gluttons for pain or they believed that Jesus was worth it. You get that? So enter the scene. Stephen is there. He preaches the gospel. He goes through all of the history of Israel and he dies and enter on the scene. It looks like this is a stage left thing. We don't really understand what's going on, but who's there? Saul slash Paul. In this case, it's pre-Jesus Saul, okay? Tell me what you learned this week about Saul. Uh, we're in these texts, Acts 7:58 through 8:3. That's where we're hitting at right now. So turn your attention there. I'm in Luke. I don't know why. Say again, Daniel. Yeah, he was, he was devoted to what he thought was right. What was he doing? Okay, how do you see that? Okay, he agreed with them to put them to death. Look at um, 758. When they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning Stephen, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of the young man named Saul. Now, these were the false witnesses that were gathered by the priest, gathered by the people that were trying to take him out, okay? They, they had this conspiracy against Stephen, and where's Saul in the midst of this? Is he the one throwing the rocks? He's a bystander. He's, he's involved because what are these people doing? Okay, that's weird. They're throwing the robes at him. Um, I guess so they can get a better aim at him. Verse 59, then they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Okay, then we get to chapter 8. Look at 8, 1, 2, and 3 real quick. What continues to happen here in Jerusalem? Persecution. What kind of persecution? Great persecution. Versus some guy just getting stoned, that, that's persecution. Great persecution, where if you named the name of Christ, what was happening? Prison or death or in the workplace, maybe charging you twice as much. All of those things. Not just like, oh, you're a Christian, you're weird. How could you believe in God? But like fear of death, fear of abandonment from your family, all of those things. This is all among the Jews, okay? What? You, you, you became a Christian? Disowned. You're no longer a part of this family. You're no longer a part of our faith system. You are kicked out. You have no place to go. No one will accept you except for the fellowship of the believers. This is why the unity that they had was so important. This was why them taking care of their own was so important, because they had nowhere else to go to. Great persecution. And look at verse 1. As a result of the persecution, what happened? The apostles were scattered. What's that mean? They were separated, yeah, but they were... What was the other word somebody said? Spread out or sent out. Now, what's that remind you of, context-wise? Yeah, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will, re you will receive power. Power for what? To be my witnesses. Power for what? Where? In Jerusalem. Good game. We got that. Jerusalem. Judea, we're on our way there now. How are we getting there? They're like, okay, campaign, we got Jerusalem, check, now let's go to Judea. What is the driving force that is spreading the gospel here? Persecution. Uh, help me out with that. What do y'all think about that? It brings you to the place where you trust, okay, God, you're sovereign. 
I'm, I'm, I'm futile. My mind is so small, and yet you are huge. I don't understand why my mom has cancer or why my dad has cancer. But I know that as my dad has cancer, that other people are watching his witness around him and seeing, okay, is Jesus worth it? And that's different. A lot of people think, well, well how can you not, like a Job situation where Job goes through all of this hardship and suffering and um, his, his wife says to him, why don't you just curse God and die? Like, just die. That's like a greeting card. Curse God and die. Get well soon, curse God, die. Um, you know, when we suffer, what's it do? It makes us stronger. <laughs> yeah? Where do you go to? What do you, what do you go to for your refuge? Are you trying to do it on, on willpower, or are, is there something bigger? Yeah. When you experience suffering, when you experience hardship, do you just give up? Do you shut down? Well, this Christianity stuff might not be real. Or do you take the questions? I'm not saying you can't be questioning God of why is this happening, but you question in faith of, God, your ways are not my ways. Okay, right on. Manifest the witness of the gospel through this situation. So, okay, it's spreading all throughout Samaria now. Um, Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him, but Saul, what did it do for Saul in Jerusalem? What do you mean, Ben? Okay, he's moved from the guy that's the coat checker to in chapter 8, verse 3, what's he doing now? Okay, the gospel's going over there. All right, I'm going over there. First, I'm going to go to the chief priest, and I'm going to say, look, we got a problem with these Christians. They're messing everything up, so why don't you write some papers down for me so that I can take these Christians, take these people that are following the way of Jesus the Messiah, who, good job on taking him out, but let me go over there, let me take care of them, bring them back here, we'll put them into prison, we'll take them out. And you know what? If I murder a couple of them along the way, whatever, I'm going to carry out the law ravaging the church. Great guy, right? Look at what it says, dragging off men and women. Now, now see, for us, we hear stories so often. We, like last night, <laughs> my wife and I were um, trying to get our three-year-old to go to bed. And so we were, we have this, like, picture Bible that she loves. No words in it, just pictures. And so we were explaining Noah um, was it Noah in the ark? No, it was Moses. Moses being put in a basket. And like these huge alligators are like chomping at the basket. And she's freaked out. And, and then it goes into the plagues. And it's like, Mommy, frogs are where? There were frogs in the bed and frogs in the oven and frogs in the bathtub. Mommy, frogs are everywhere. And so she has these horrible dreams about frogs. Because she, as a three-year-old, hasn't gotten like numb to the fact that of these crazy, God-sized stories that are taking place. She has this imagination where when you say, homegirl put her child in a basket and threw it off in the river because the bad, mean king was killing everybody, and that was her only hope. She believes it. She's like, how how could mommy do that? Please don't put me in a basket, mommy. We're working on her on some things. And sure enough, she had dreams last night about frogs and about gnats and about all the cows dying because they had pestilence. I mean, it's a pretty cool book. That's a children's story, though. So go back with me, please. Look at verse 3. That's in the book of Exodus, if you want to read to your children tonight. Uh, Look at verse 3. What are they doing? What is Saul doing? Ravaging dragging men and women from Damascus through the street back to Jerusalem. Not just like holding their hand, but dragging them. At this point, he's on his way out. So we're not sure if, you know, he got a couple and went back. 
or if he's just now starting out, it's implied there, it looks like he's, he's been doing this for a little while because it says he ravaged the church. So as Ben said, he's gaining this reputation. But what's happening in verse 4? Well, that, that Jesus stuff, we're out. That can mean our lives. That can mean our families. That can mean our social well-being. I mean, what about the club? We're not going to be able to go to the club anymore. Because we're Christians. We're not, so we're going to do this thing on Sundays, but at the club, we're going to do what everybody else does. What happens? Suffering increases the boldness to the word. Man. So, gut check here. If we say that we want, we want the gospel to go out like it did here, what, what are we signing up for? What, what can we expect to happen? Suffering. How are people going to know that Jesus is worth it if everything is just great for you? If this, there really is something to this health, wealth, prosperity gospel where you follow Jesus and he'll give you this, that. He's your Santa Claus, whatever you want. But we don't suffer as those who have no hope. When we suffer, it's a magnifying glass on the hope that we have of Jesus Christ. That this world's not our home. That this is momentary light affliction. Whatever. Yeah, it's still hard. But, man, look, look at where we're going. Look at the heavenly shore that we're going to. And psh, whatever, bring it. It's going to make me more like Christ. What if we had that attitude where, where we're like, okay, not that we're like, suffer, let me suffer, but that, okay, God, whatever you want, what, if, if I want to be serious about becoming more like Jesus, all right, I surrender it all. If that means suffering, if that means persecution. I see in, in America, we're like, oh, persecution, again, is, you know, on the playground. Oh, you're a Christian. Don't hang out with Billy. He's a Christian. Not like people picking up rocks or staplers or knives and throwing them at you. Let's keep going. What's the story? I don't know why I said staplers. That's weird. I'm a retard. What else did you learn about Saul? What happened with him? Jump to chapter 9. The rest of that stuff in there about Peter and John we'll come back to later. But what else, what else do you see in chapter Chapter 9. No, I'm not going to read 9, 1 through 30. But, okay, he was a religious individual. He went through all the outward motions of religion. Jesus came to him. Okay, give me a little more. Jesus came to him. Like how? He saw a great white light. Okay, this is a little trippy here. What else? What was he going to do? He's going to Damascus. Paul went walking on the road to Damascus. And uh, some people were with him. This great light appears. And what's Saul do? Falls to the ground as you and I would if we saw a great light and we're blinded by it. And some scary voice from the sky started speaking to us. This was before Kmart had PA systems and before drive throughs and all that stuff. You typically did not hear voices coming at you without someone being there. So, a little weird. What else happens? Okay. He acknowledged. Uh, let's look. What, what's Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And at this point, does he know that it's Jesus? No, okay, because you look at what he says. What's he say? Okay, persecuting you? What the heck? I'm just walking to the road to Damascus. Why are you persecuting me? And what does Jesus say to him? Um, I'm Jesus. You know, the one you're persecuting and you're dragging that lady through the street 
yeah, she worships me. Yeah, remember when you were there in all those coats and that big thing with Stephen happened? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so what's Saul do? What up, Jesus? I, I mean, what's he do here? He's speechless. He's still on the ground, still dumbfounded. What's this, what's Jesus tell him? Okay, go to Damascus, and it will be told to you what to do after you get there. Just go. Does he do it? Yeah. Now, tell me what's going on around Paul at this time. Is he alone like this, you know, like the, on stage where you have the monologue where it all goes black or like... Um, back in the day where Zach Morris would just be like, it would be frozen and he'd have this conversation with the camera. Is that what's happening? Are other people around? Okay. You thought Paul, or Saul, whatever, was freaking out. These guys who are with him, probably because they're going with him to get some Christians and persecute them, they're on the way to do that too. And they hear the voice and they're like, bro, you are persecuting Jesus. We need to stop but they don't see anything either. Weird. What do they tell them? What do they do? Why do he need help to get to Damascus? Oh yeah, by the way, the big bright light blinded him and now he can't see anymore. So his friends who are going to persecute with him take him there and how long is he there? Three days. Doesn't eat. Doesn't drink. What's he doing this whole time? Praying. Crazy. He's praying. He's blinded by this light. He has this encounter with Jesus where he says, you are persecuting me. Stop. Why are you persecuting me? And he goes, and all he can do is pray. He can't even get up off the ground and know which way is Damascus. He's got to have people help him. Humiliated. What happens in Damascus? Okay. Scales fall off. There's some, there's some break in there. What happens? There's this other guy named Ananias. God speaks to him in a vision. That's kind of weird. We got bright lights. We got visions. And what's in the vision? Hey, there's this guy. His name's Saul. I'm going to change his name to Paul. But that's going to confuse you, so I'm not even going to tell you that yet. Go to where he is, the, the road called Straight. He's in Damascus. And what? Lay your hands on him. Not like kill him, but pray for him. And what's going to happen to him? He'll regain his sight. And what do we learn about what God has for Saul slash Paul? Yeah, where is that? Verse 15, 16, and following. Let's look at that real quick, if you have your Bible. 15. But the Lord said to him, oh, by the way, verse 14, Ananias isn't like, okay, let's go. Ananias has some some problems with this. But wait, this is the guy who was persecuting us. This is the guy who was given the authority to bind us and throw us into prison. All right. And God says to him, hey, he's my chosen servant. What's God going to do through Saul? Preach to the Gentiles who up until this point have not heard the gospel and have not received the Holy Spirit. He's going to bear my name, my chosen instrument. And what's he going to do, not only before the the Gentiles, but also through whom? Kings. Through the Gentiles, through the kings, and I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. Remember our our church slogan outside on the street? Hey, come here, suffer. That's what God says to Paul, slash Saul, whatever, when he preaches to him, when he shows him the reality of his state before him. So finish the story for me. What happens with a boy, Saul, slash Paul? Ananias goes to him. Okay, remember that guy who spoke to you in the light? 
and this wasn't like Paul and Ananias had a conversation about it. It was, hey, I know you were walking on the road in Damascus. I know that you saw a great light. Well, the person who spoke to you in the great light also spoke to me in a dream. Weird, freaky, doo-doo-doo-doo, weird. And he told me to come to you, lay hands on you, so that you could receive the Holy Spirit. And let's get this pot of started. Roll sleeves up, put hands on him, pray for him, and what happens to Saul? Scales fall off his eyes. That's important because he was blind, blinded by the light. Scales fall off his eyes. And what else? Just kidding, I'm going to kill you. Let's go back to Jerusalem. Is that what happens? Answer is no, unless you have a different version. What happens? Oh, wait, what? He's baptized. Like, baptized in the spirit or like, badoosh, baptized. Badoosh, right, okay? He is immersed in the water. Baptism, okay. Following, following okay, I'm going to be identified with Christ now. Then what's he do? Oh, he eats. That's really, he hasn't eaten for three days. That's important. His strength is regained. And he goes to seminary for four years before he can preach the gospel. He goes to a 12-week program for Persecutors Anonymous. Yes, no? What's he do? Immediately, he starts to preach the gospel. Where? Within the synagogues. The very people that he was on their team trying to rally them to take out the Christians, now he's going to them... He's had some food, has the Holy Spirit in him, and what's he doing? Hey, here's Jesus. He'd heard it from Stephen. Stephen died. Now he's taking the gospel. You will receive power to be my witnesses. Does Paul get it? Has he got the power to be the witness? Right on. Everybody say right on, please. Okay. What else happens with him? He very much irritates people. What? Baffled the Jews in Damascus. Whoa, look at the life change that took place in this guy. What else? Yeah. There's a plot. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. We'll go back a little bit. What's the dialogue here? What's he called? He's part of the family now. His brother, does everybody accept him immediately? No, he's got some problems in Damascus, so where does he go? Back to Jerusalem. Whoops. Did that work out well for him? No, he, I mean, he's got to be, he can't go out of the gate like a normal person. He's got to be lowered down from the gate because people are trying to kill him. I mean, life change has happened in the life of Paul. People are, who were his friends, are now his enemies. They are trying to take him out. And it is, it is game time for Paul. All right. What happens in Jerusalem? Try to kill him. The disciples are scared of him. Now, why would the disciples, not sure if this is 12 or if this is disciples in all of Jerusalem, why would they be afraid of him? Okay. He'd be one that was persecuting him. Why would that make them afraid of him? They think he's pretending. Oh, he's going to do a little alias action where he's going to come in, act like he's one of us, and then take us all down like a sleeper cell. Not on my watch. Except for whom? Our boy Barnabas. What a weird name, I know. But what does Barnabas, sorry if your name is Barnabas or your dad's name is Barnabas. It's a weird name. What do they do? What does Barnabas do? Sorry. He defended him. He loved on him. He encouraged him. While Paul was growing, I mean, he's already sharing the gospel. That, that floors me. It didn't take three years for him. It didn't take a, well, I've walked with Jesus for 10 years, but I haven't shared the gospel ever. It was an immediate, the DNA of the gospel was in him. The DNA of the gospel was moving him to share the gospel with others. 
I say DNA of the gospel. The Holy Spirit was within him and causing him to witness. You know we're going to get to the application of this in a second, right? Yes or no? Okay. Barnabas. Verse 28. Look at verse 28 real quick. Barnabas takes him, hears his story, maybe takes him out to prehistoric Starbucks, has some dinner with him, has a conversation with him. Tell me about what happened, bro. Well, I was doing this persecution thing. It was working out well for me. Rising the ladder in the persecution realm. And I went walking on this road to Damascus in this bright light. Freaked me out. God talked to me. Jesus, or Jesus talked to me. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And went through the whole story, the whole testimony. Barnabas hears it, and what's he do? Verse, he tells the apostles, hey, this is legit. This has happened. Jews in Jerusalem were attempting to put him to death, but verse 28 does that stop Paul? Does he go in hiding in a cave for a while? What's it say he had? Boldness. You can't just say it like, boldness. He has boldness. He has boldness for the sake of the gospel. The, where suffering, where persecution should just like totally tear him apart and shut him down, what's it do? Makes him stronger. Or... Let's flip that around a little bit. It builds his confidence so much in Jesus that he cannot help but have the courage in the midst of adversity. Not courage because he's like gritty and like alpha male, but courage because he has so much awe and wonderment at Jesus. Jesus is worth it to Paul. Wasn't at first. Okay, so let's take this real quick. You're in your little cohort, right? Let's talk about this for a second. What, what is this whole story about? Transformation. That's the word I was thinking. What's that word mean? We use that word a lot. Change. Like... Um, change, my daughter's three, like in three years she'll be six, uh, six years after that, God help us all, she'll go through puberty, like that kind of change, you're like, Ew, that's gross, your daughter's three, what kind of change, completely made new, okay, let's say that I take this pillow, and I want to change the pillow, so I grab a knife, and I destroy the pillow, and I change the pillow, me, outward action, changing, physical, outside appearance. Change of heart. Beth, you're shaking your head. No, what are, what are you talking about? Murder or persecutor to biggest advocate, bigness, biggest witness for the sake of the gospel. I mean, this is like a, a, an awesome poster child situation here. Oh, you were persecuting us. Now you've been transformed. The, let's take that word transform some more, transformation. Um, let's, uh, let's unpack that word a little bit more. What's transformed mean? Change into something different. Gradual change. Okay, but let's look at Paul's life. Was it a gradual change? I'm killing Christians, saw a light, scales, three days, hungry, then, boom, received the Holy Spirit. Drastic life change. Excellent. Good deal. All right, in your group, you didn't know you were in a group, but you're in a group. If you're not in a group, get in a group. Tell me about, tell your group about what you think of when you hear the word conversion experience. Conversion 
experience. Paul, in chapter 9, was converted. He was a hater of God. I mean, literal hater of God. And he was converted to Christianity. To the way, by Jesus' encounter with Jesus. Tell me what you think of when you hear the word converted. Okay? Break up in your group. Talk about it for a second. Somebody be the brave one. Do a little chit-chat. We've played word association for a second. What do you think of when you think of the word conversion? Somebody shout out. What, what was said in your group? What? What happened? You think of work? Converted? Oh, that's too crazy for me. She converts 401ks, okay. Oh, that stresses me out too. Converting metrics. Converting money. A change. An immediate change. Complete change. Okay, now here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do is define conversion in regards to Christianity. What is conversion when, we, when we're talking about Christianity? Go. In your group. Conversion in regards to Christianity. We don't use the example to explain the example. Born again? Okay. I am not a Sunday school answer type of person. So when you say Christianese words, I'm going to ask you to, to explain what those mean, okay? What do you mean born again? That's a little weird. John chapter 3, Nicodemus didn't understand that at first. You want me to crawl up where again? <laughs> Please explain. Yes, I just said that. Okay, dead to me, dead to my way of life, identified with Christ, live with Christ, alive in Christ. It's very Romans 6 of you, great explanation. What else? Okay. So his worldview before was Christianity is wrong, vehemently opposed to Christianity, let's take out Christians. Then his worldview was converted, his thinking was converted, but did it stay just at his thinking? His worldview was converted, how did his actions, how were they affected? Stopped persecuting, started preaching, started not just preaching, but going out of his way in the midst of suffering to preach the gospel. That's a worldview change that leads to action change, right? I like what you said too. It is a complete U-turn. I am going this way. This is my route. This is the way I live my life. I am God. And Saul was God. But what happened? U-turn. Jesus showed up, bright light, Jesus spoke to him, and he had the message of the gospel from Stephen, and he got it. For three days, he spent time in prayer, came, Ananias came to him, laid hands on him, all right, I'm ready. He became a new creature. Nice, take the analogy a little further. Yeah. God is my co-pilot. Remember that one? Whatever. You better get out of the seat then. All right? Jesus, and I like some of the things that I heard you say. Jesus calls us to do two things. This is what conversion is. Okay? Paul was walking this way. Repent. Turn. 
to say, I'm walking this way, this is wrong, turn and repent and believe. I'm turning away from this. I can't just turn away from this, though, and expect. I've got to turn away from this and believe in Jesus, that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for me, that Jesus was the Son of God. So it's not just um, this change of thinking. It's a change of thinking that leads to repent, believe. When Jesus calls us, he calls us to repent and believe. A radical change in what we believe and do. Jesus is the sign outside of First Baptist Eulis, our, our thing of, hey, come suffer. Take up your cross and follow me. Like what you said, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow after me. To know him. We count everything else as rubbish, but to know him, the fellowship of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. To know Jesus is our aim. Conversion. Let me tell you some things that conversion is not, and I want you to talk about how you've seen this in your, in your Christian life or in your I'm checking things out life. All right? What conversion is not? Conversion is not a one-time event with no implications for how we live. Conversion, let me say it one more time and then unpack it with your group. Conversion is not a one-time event with no implications for how we live. See if you have an interpreter in your group that can interpret what that means. Okay? If not, I'll kind of look at the days and confused looks in a second and see if we can unpack that. It's not a one-time event with no implications for the how we live. Okay, is there an interpreter in the room? What's that mean? Okay, professes to know Christ, but, but I said a one-time event with no implications for the way I live. What, give me an example of the one-time event. What? What did you say, Catherine? Okay, walk down the aisle. What else? Baptism. Church camp. Dana, I'm getting ready to go to church camp next week. You just totally shot that one for me. Okay, yeah. Uh, an emotional experience where Billy went, and so Billy's kind of cool, and everybody wants... Billy, who names their kid Billy anymore? That kid gets saved, or whatever, and so... 1,800 people say, oh, I want to be like him. Big cry fest, emotional music, 10 altar calls. Are we saying some of those aren't authentic? No. But if that's the only thing in your life, oh, I'm putting all my faith in, well, I, I, I went to church camp when I was 14 and, and, and said a prayer. And there's been no Paul, Saul to Paul experience drastic change, U-turn. Now, am I saying that you were a prostitute before and now you're a nun? No. But you were living this way before and now you don't live to please yourself. You live to please God. Does that make sense? Not a one... Yeah. Exactly. This is where she said preaching the gospel to yourself is important. I have the conversation a lot with people. My job for you is to teach you how to take the gospel and apply it to every situation of your life. So let's say that someone was in your group, we were to say, hey, what's your top three sins that you have a problem with? It'd be a little awkward, right? It'd be like, hey, my name's Billy. So what? <laughs> and here's my top three sins. I would, I would love if we had that environment here where we could trust each other enough for that. But what if we took your top three sins? Think of the top one right now in your brain. Ready? You're there. I don't have the supernatural skill of reading your mind, so nobody knows except for Jesus. You got your sin, right? Now, is that sin really the issue? Is that really the problem? 
No. There is a deeper issue. Let, let's take, for example, um, I'm Italian. I get angry a lot. I get really frustrated. I'm short, too, which makes me even really more frustrated because I feel like I have to overcompensate for the fact that I'm 5'7", five, 5'8", five, if I really get this thing going right here. Okay? I'm angry. And so when things happen in my life, my initial flesh response is anger. That's, that's the symptom. What's the root? Why am I angry? Because I'm short. <laughs> You're right. You got me. I'm angry because I feel like somebody has, has taken my rights or my privileges away from me, that they, they have not realized that the world revolves around me, and so they've brought their stuff into my life, and I'm angry about it. They didn't get the memo of how life was supposed to happen today. And so really, anger is, I, I am God. I am the idol in my life. Things did not happen the way that I wanted them to happen. And you can do that with all of your sins that so easily entangle you. Lying. Why do you lie? Why do we lie? If you say something right now, we will not assume that you're a liar, even though we know you are, because everyone is. Self-preservation. Give me, give me an explanation of that. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to show my weakness. I want people to like me. I want people to dig me. I, want, I don't want people to think badly of me for what I really did, so I'm going to just exaggerate. Is lying the problem? No. You are God. You are the idol. You want to worship you. You want other people to look at you and say, wow, they're awesome. Wow, they have... This, for me in high school, it was the, whatever the latest gaming system was. That's what everybody lied about. And then you have a slumber party, even though boys don't have slumber parties. You go to their house, and you chill at the night, and they don't have that gaming system. And you're mad. They lied. Why? Because they wanted to fit in. Whatever your sin is, there's a root. And so my job is to take the gospel and to expose that. The gospel is you have We'll take the, this idol right here. You have nothing. You are nothing without Jesus. So why lie? Why not boast in your weaknesses? That's the gospel. Why not realize that you had nothing, you were not lovely, you were not worth anything, but Christ died for you and changed your identity, and that's of supreme worth. That's of supreme value. Not your stupid we or Sega Genesis, or whatever. Not people's reputation, not people's thinking about you. The Savior of the world accepts you. That's your identity. Who gives a rip about the guy in high school? If only it were that easy. That's where we take the gospel, and like you said, we preach it to ourselves. This is who I was. By God's grace, not because of me, not because I mustered up the courage to walk down the aisle, but because God wooed me with the Holy Spirit and changed me, and I responded in faith, repentance, and now he has changed my identity. He's taken the heart transplant, the stone, heart of stone out that did not hear him at all, and he's placed a heart of flesh that has the word, the law of God written in it, and he's given me his spirit to walk out in obedience. That's gospel. I had nothing to do with that except for I put all in. I trust you, Jesus. So here's the question. If that's what conversion is, if Paul was converted in that way, should that be the norm or the exception to the rule in my case? Let me say it again. Should that be the norm where you turn, like Mike said, going this way, turn this way, drastic change? Should that be the norm or the exception? Why do you say that? That should be the norm. What else is there? 
What a, okay, you can't walk in the darkness by being in the light. Okay. Okay, so Catherine, what if I look at my life right now and there has not been a drastic change in my life? You need to reevaluate who you're serving. Are you serving yourself? Are you bowing down to you as idol? Or are you serving Jesus as king? Okay. Is conversion optional? Yeah. Not if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. It's good. Let me read these real quickly and we're done, okay? What if you're at the place where you're like, well, I'm not converted. How do I know if I'm converted? Let me share with you some truths from the book that the Lord used in my life. Yes, the Bible, but the specific book, 1 John, to show me that I was not a child of God, that I was deceived. Because, see, even as unbelievers, even sometimes as believers, we deceive ourselves about sin that's in our lives. Y'all realize that, right? That we deceive ourselves. Oh, I can handle it. Oh, I can maintain it. Oh, I can manage this sin. But when we're in community with one another and we give people the opportunity to speak truth into our lives, yeah, when I'm noticing some, some big unforgiveness in your life. What's going on? And, and like you said, we, we walk with people of, remember the gospel. You've got unforgiveness. Uh, Jesus forgave you. How can you not forgive someone else? We walk them through what the gospel looks like. So if you're in a place where you're like, well, how can I know if I've been genuinely converted? There's four tests. Let me say them to you real quick. Number one is the belief test. What do you believe? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus Christ, has been born of God. First John 5 says that. So you ask yourself, do I trust in Jesus for salvation? Not, I've accepted Jesus into my heart, but do I trust, 100% gutsy trust, that Jesus is Savior? Do I believe that? So that's test one, the belief test. Test two, the obedience test. Let me read this to you. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, this is what Catherine was saying, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another as a body of believers, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's 1 John 1, verses 6 and 7. I'll put these online somewhere later so you can see all these. So we ask ourselves with the obedience test, does my life right now show a pattern of habitual, unrepentant sin? Or does it show a habit of repenting of sin and striving to walk in the light? Either or. Repetitive, habitual sin, or sin, repent, confess, walk in the light. That's test number two. Test number one, belief. Test number two, obedience. If you are habitual sin, what's that say? Converted? No. You're being deceived. Number three, the love test. This is the one that really got me when I was 17 years old. Well, and the habitual sin one too. Really all of them, whatever. The love test. Barry Manilow, the love test. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. 1 John 3, 14 and 15. So with the love test, I ask myself, do I love other Christians in concrete, practical ways that show the reality of my faith? Do I love the brothers concretely? Not like, oh, hey, bro, I love you. Good game. But do I love them sacrificially? The love test. If I don't, if I hate my brother, if I'm constantly at odds with brothers and sisters, what's it say? Converted or unconverted? I feel like it's a game show. Converted or unconverted? 
What's the answer? You, you've got some serious testing of your walk to do. And then the fourth one, the perseverance test. This brings us full circle to the suffering thing. First uh, John 2.19, John says this, they went out from us, out from the church, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. Basic bottom line story, they were a partner, they were a part of what was going on, then they left, they left, and they just walked away from it all. They walked away from the faith, they walked away from God, they walked away from everything. Those who do not persevere in the faith prove that their faith was false in the first place. So ask yourself, am I continuing in the faith despite struggles? Am I continuing in the faith despite opposition? Am I continuing in the faith despite suffering? Those are the four tests that 1 John gives us. My prayer for you is that we would move from being an easy believism where God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. We would move past that too. Is my life showing that Jesus is worth it? Am I denying myself, taking up my cross, following after Jesus? That's what the gospel is. That's what a U-turn, that's what a Saul to Paul experience looks like. And what's awesome, if you looked at some of those cross-references this week, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I was an example to everybody else. That gives me humility, shows me it can happen to anybody, and that's my state before I was a believer, humility. And it shows me there is no one who is too far from the reach of God's righteous right arm. There is no one who is too far from salvation. Look at Paul. Look at you. Look at that person that you're thinking of that you wish that they would come to know Christ. No one. Let's pray. God, I thank you for truth. I thank you for the life of Saul. I thank you for being a God who sovereignly orchestrates situations and events. What a masterpiece the the book of Acts is. I thank you for the life of Paul. I thank you more about what you did in Paul's life than what Paul did for you. How you take us and you change us. Lord, I pray that for people in this room that you would allow us to evaluate our lives, that you would so by the Holy Spirit tonight and over the next few days allow us to evaluate, has there been a change in my life? Am I putting all of my faith in a card that I signed or a a walkway that I walked or a stick that I threw in the fire when I was 13 and there's no other fruit in my life? Lord, if that's the case, I ask that you would break us, break our pride, that you would remove the scales from our eyes and allow the evil one to deceive us no longer and allow the Holy Spirit to continue to woo people to salvation. And Father, that we would not just talk about these things, but it would be the change of repent and believe in Jesus Christ. For that is the message of the kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us, pursuing us, for dying for us, for taking our guilt and our shame and giving us your righteousness. We're amazed at that. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the one who takes away our sin. Amen. Awesome. Hope you all have a great night tonight.